Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald, a PhD trauma researcher and life coach. It is my goal in life to reframe the way that we understand trauma. And I think if we want to understand trauma, we need more stories, more examples, an archive of trauma stories. But not just an archive where someone lays their story down for posterity and walks away, an archive that gives them something back, some attunement, some empathy, a reframe, integration, maybe some little piece of knowledge or understanding so that they walk away feeling like the thing that makes the least sense in their lives makes just a little more sense. This podcast is that archive. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week, we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal without shame. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee, and join us. Okay, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. I was just listening um, to um, NPR had a thing on um, Michael Pollan was talking about um, psychedelics to um, heal PTSD. Oh, really? Yeah. That seems to be everywhere these days. Because it works. <laughs> Did you watch Nine Perfect Strangers? No, I didn't. Okay. I think we need to start doing episodes about television shows. <laughs> okay. But I, like, I can't watch this like egregiously painful shit, like scenes from a marriage that everyone was talking about. Like, I haven't started that one. Don't watch it. it to me. You know how like okay. there are movies that are violently, that are so violent. It's like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's like unnecessary. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what is that word? Um, gratuitous. Yes. Gratuitous violence. This is like gratuitous emotional violence. I'm not into it. Yeah. There's enough of that in the world, you know? Yeah. You got to know like your limit and what you can take at any given time. I think, you know, but I just think that stuff shouldn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) I, I get the impression it's like, um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, just like that, like depressing, like Mm -hmm. stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, but I don't know anything about it. We have a um, follow-up letter this week, which I think is super cool. It's so great to hear from someone that uh, reached out in February and, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of right when we started and kind of circle back a little bit. So I found this, thank you for writing back in and um, kind of giving us an update. And um, there's also a couple of questions in here that the writer has. Okay. So he says, um, you featured me on episode six, which was called on accepting radically. Thank you. It was strange, comforting and confronting. I felt parts of your analysis were incisive and cut me to the core, but other parts didn't hold much relevance, mostly because I wasn't ready to give proper context, but you're right about the resistance. Thank you for recognizing it, acknowledging it, and talking about it. Your insight helped me face things I couldn't bear to face. It helped me grow and let go. I wanted to write and say thanks, but it was still so raw. I asked myself now, why did I leave out all the deaths? They were important. Trauma was everywhere, in my family, the workplace, my friends, not just in my love life. I have a follow-up question, but I'll need to ramble a while first, so apologies in advance. I hadn't told you the full story. I told myself it would muddy the narrative, but I just wasn't ready to disclose some parts. I was still angry with my ex-wife over her behavior during the marriage and divorce, and I now understand how I failed her. I was still defensive about my girlfriend, so I left things out about her. She suffers from depression, and she's an alcoholic, 
and I'm beginning to believe she's got borderline personality disorder. I'm not qualified to diagnose her, of course, but the descriptions seem to line up with her behavior. I've been reading up on splitting, and she's got a tendency to glorify or demonize things without any middle ground. It's such bliss when we thrive together, and it's such a savage beatdown when she turns and dehumanizes me. We're trying to be friends, but we both still need more time to heal. Personally, I've healed in leaps and bounds and learned more about myself than I ever thought possible, even if I still refer to her as my girlfriend. I still love her fearlessly. I've loved her since we were 17. As well as defending my ex-girlfriend, I didn't say that I went through a lot of childhood trauma. 10 years before I was born, my father intervened while my grandfather was beating my grandmother. My father killed him with a single punch. It was an accident. As a result, my father believed he didn't deserve to live and was terrified that his own children would kill him. Those two convictions made him prone to verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. We were screamed at and bullied. I was beaten often, smacked around, thrown across the room. He tried to hang himself outside my bedroom window when he was at the same age that his father had been, thinking it was unfair to outlive him. I was constantly told that it's best to do anything for peace, so we should accept it without fighting back. I'm the youngest, and he hit me the most. At school, I developed a reputation for not feeling pain, so they tested me. It was like that part in Goodwill Hunting where he chose the wrench, because fuck you, that's why. I had mobs of people bashing me just to see if I would react. The lunch bell would ring, and we'd return to class like nothing happened. I slashed myself up and burned myself, and nobody said a word about the injuries or the blood. I've lost count of how many friends died by suicide or overdoses. When we made it through those dangerous years in our 20s, but they kept on dying. My best friend was stabbed to death in a park by a man who literally came out of the bushes and attacked him. God had told him to wait between a bridge and a river, and he'd send three men. The other two friends were badly wounded but lived. I'm sick of going to funerals. Grief is like an old friend that I just don't want to see. My girlfriend was coping with the fact that her abuser had died, that she didn't need to sit with her back to a wall, and she became more prone to drunken outbursts, accusing me of whatever she could to hurt me. I was going through a custody battle with my ex-wife, so she attacked my parenting. I listened to it, trying to piece together something coherent through her ramblings. I told myself if I listened enough, I'd be able to connect the dots and see what she saw, but I never could. It was all projection on her part. It was her own inadequate feelings about being an alcoholic mother, her anger at her dead stalker ex-boyfriend for tormenting her, anger at her parents over the emotional abuse in her childhood. I'm an excellent father. I know that objectively, despite my flaws. She knew I would not attack her, that she was safe to brutalize me. So she berated me. And I told myself the truth would appear if I did enough mental gymnastics. I think though, in reality, I went back into freeze. I've had it ingrained into me that flight is not an option and there are dire consequences if I fight. It has led to poor boundaries and people thinking I'm an easy target, as well as a tendency to self-harm and cocoon myself in the safety of pain. These days, I get other people to do it. I'm covered in tattoos and scars. Most of them are beautiful, but some are just plain brutal. It is okay for people to attack me, but tragedy will happen if I lash out against others. I have a good psychologist and we work together well, but my follow-up question is about my amygdala and I feel you're more qualified to answer. How do I get around this? How do I unlearn freeze? 
I'm not talking about grounding or recovering after the fact. I know how to cope with abuse. I use resistance, which you picked up on. I need to learn how to respond better when I'm under attack. I need to fight back without fear of becoming a killer. I need to learn it is okay to defend myself. How can I learn that the world won't end if I fight instead of freeze? Thank you for your podcast, truly. You're changing people's lives. Mm. Yeah. What are your initial thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I, um, can I just say thank you for writing back, like for, for coming back and continuing the conversation. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I also think it's tremendous progress since February. Yeah, totally. You know, that's not that long and not at all. Um, I'm struck by his core belief that he's an excellent father. I think that's super important and grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he should feel any shame about revealing his story in uh, layers because I think that's what we do. Totally. I, you know, I don't think we're always ready to face all the things that have happened in mm-hmm. one fell swoop and they mm-hmm. kind of come out as they come out. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of fascinated by the concept that, you know, when you decide to go on this journey of, of um, self-awareness and healing and trying to feel better, trying to hurt less, trying to, you know, realize your impact on the world. I feel like you fill your gas with car and your car with gas. I was like, what? <laughs> <And> you, <laughs> you fill your car with gas. You point it in the right direction. You set the intention mm-hmm. and you go. And um, sometimes just making those decisions is enough to mm-hmm. open yourself up to all the things that you need to face and address. You know what I mean? Totally. Because you don't know what's going to be on the path. You don't. Until you, don't. you get going. Yeah. Right. And, and I think we get caught up in like, what do I do next? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? And it's just the fact that you're on the road is often the thing, the thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, about disclosure, like we, this is actually something that I've done studies on with my research partners about like, because we have this idea, like, okay, if you need to talk about your trauma, then you should just talk about it all right away. But there's actually, it's sort of like a tightrope situation because disclosing too much too quickly can actually re-traumatize you. And we hold such a strange value on accuracy and truth in our narratives as if it's the only thing that matters. But especially when you're talking about disclosing things like this, going at your pace is critical to your health. You know what I mean? So like to go back to the analogy of, um, of the road trip. You know, you can only go as fast as is safe and you can want to be at your destination five hours before you are, but that's not going to get you there, you know, and it's yeah. going to be harmful to try to like go too quickly. You know what I mean? Disclosure is healing, but it has to be done on your own, on your own, you know, timeline. That's the, that's what we found in the studies, which is cool. And also like that there are exits that will come up along the way that you right. didn't realize were there. Right. You know, 
Right. And I, like, I, I know I said this to you last week, you know, offline that since we started this journey and, you know, started examining things about ourselves and our beliefs and with all the tools that we used, I started having pretty vivid dreams about mm-hmm. generational trauma and things that had happened to me mm-hmm. where I addressed the, the abuser in both right. of those situations. And right. I would have said to you in my waking, this wasn't in, in my dreams, right, right? I would have said to you that day in my waking hours, those things are not important. I know. <laughs> right. You know, like, right. I'm not thinking about I, that I, anymore. I'm over it. Yeah. I'm way yeah. over that. That's not, that's not important at all. So it's kind of fascinating how they reveal themselves when they need to. Yeah. And our, and our, you know, yeah, our unconscious or our psyche or our whatever you want to call it is monitoring that for us, you know? Right. And keeping that right. for us. So if he could, yeah. And protecting us. Right. Right in a way. So, so there's, shouldn't be any shame in no. not, in not telling right. whatever in not, right. you know, revealing everything at once. You don't mm-hmm. know what you need to reveal until mm-hmm. it shows up. Right. And, and when you're disclosing too, like you're, you're testing the audience a little bit, right. Cause you have access to all of your stories and all of the knowledge and all of the awareness and all that. And then you're imagining the audience and what the audience might say and how they might respond. And so you kind of have to go forward slowly to see if the stuff that you have is going to be safe in that space, you know? Right. Right. And so it sounds like that's, that, that's one, I think one of the reasons why I think I'm so happy that this person wrote back because that shows that it's like, okay, wait, but I have more questions and you feel like this is a safe place to disclose more, which is great. Yeah, it's wonderful. There are 14,000 things to talk about <laughs> in the letter. Um, so I'm going to go right to the amygdala stuff, and then we can we can kind of circle back if there are things we should jump back to or just see what else comes up from the letter. Um, okay. So, okay, let's talk about the amygdala. This has been like a thing lately. People are talking about fight, flight, and freeze all over the place in kind of really strange ways. So I'm, I'm also really glad that we have this opportunity to revisit some of this stuff because it's, it's brain science. And I love that. And also let's get it right. Cause we can, right. Yeah. So the nervous system responds to threat in one of three ways, flee, fight, freeze. And I'm saying those in those order because there's sort of like a ladder, right? Like these, there are, these responses are layered. They're default settings that come with us when we arrive in the world, and they are how we respond in a crisis. They're automatic responses. This is our most primal, foundational, fundamental wiring. And so this stuff exists whether we want it to or not. And we can't unlearn it. Mm -hmm. That's like saying, I want to unlearn my like heart rate. Right. You know, it can't, you can't, it's just part of your biology. So the first thing that happens when you identify a threat, right. Meaning your, your amygdala, which is like a smoke alarm notices that there's smoke. The first question that your brain asks itself is, can I escape? And if you can get away, like if, if your brain makes that split second decision that you can get away and escape and avoid interacting with the threat entirely, that's the response that will happen. Flee. 
Um, the second question that comes up or another question that comes up is, can I overpower it? So if you deem that you can't flee, the, the next question is, can I overpower whatever this is? So if you imagine like a fire in your house, can I, you walk out of your bedroom and you, there's flames. Can I overpower the, the fire? Right. And your brain makes again, a split second decision that you are not choosing to overpower, to fight, right? Whatever that means, throw a blanket over the fire, get some water, grab your, you know, fire extinguisher, whatever. Um, That's so if the answer to can I overpower it is yes, then you go to fight. If the answer to can I overpower it is no, you go into freeze. And if you go back to like, we kind of have to change the the dynamic to one where we're talking about being attacked by an animal, because this is where this response comes from in evolutionary biology can I make it lose interest and think about animals who, when they're being attacked might make the animal lose interest by freezing. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if the body kind of closes up and becomes rigid and, and you don't move, then you're, you might be able to keep the threat from noticing you. Yeah. And from killing the possum does in the yard. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so if the answer to, can I make it lose interest is yes, then you freeze. If the answer to can I make it lose interest is no, you collapse. And this is the final, it's sort of, there's arguments about whether this is part of the freeze response or if it's a different response. I think it's related to freeze neurobiologically. That's just my two cents. Um, you're, this is the dissociative response. You check out. Mm-hmm. And these are experiences. Bessel van der Kolk describes being mugged in Boston in his book, The Body Keeps the Score and how he like sort of noticed he was getting beaten up and he noticed his himself sort of floating above his body. The reason your body does that is because it makes it less likely to feel pain. And so yes. this is what the, the writer is describing when they're talking about getting beaten up and bullied, right? When you check out, you can't feel pain. You get a reputation for not being able to feel pain, right? That, that, that's how that works. Um, there isn't time to try every approach, Right. So your nervous system makes these choices like instantaneously. It's not like a, oh, well, let's see. I have these four paths I can take. Let's, uh, let's should we freeze this time? No, let's, you know, <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's instantaneous. And then we come in after the fact and we say, I did the wrong thing. Right. But you, you wouldn't, like the possum wouldn't say that to itself, right? Like this is- right. The, the, in a, in a sense, like the rational deciding mind has no, no place here before or after the fact, um, it's you, these are automatic responses. Mm -hmm. You can be really annoyed that you're hungry. You can't stop being hungry unless you eat. right? Right. Like it's just, it's interesting that we judge this because it's related to our psychology and we don't judge the stuff that's much more obviously body based. This is body based. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I'm I'm a little confused at freeze versus collapse because right collapse sounds like what happens after you freeze, but I might be being too literal about it. Um, what do you mean? Dissociative. So collapse is like the outer, like I always say that wrong. Out of body. Out of body experience. Yeah. Think about like you're literally out of your body. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And freeze is just the moment of paralysis. Yeah. Okay. 
Totally. Body, body paralysis. There are neuroscientists that argue that they're the same. This is why I think there's confusion there. Um, There's an increasing body of work around how we need to distinguish freeze from dissociate from what I know about what we know about the brain. I think they're the same enough to not require the split, but some people talk about, it's just a difference in how you look at it. I don't think we know enough yet to know. I could be wrong about that, but um, collapse is when you're sort of, I think freeze, the goal of freeze, if you're going to look at them as two different things, the goal of freeze is to, to have the threat pass you by. Okay. Collapse is when the threat has not passed you by. And now you're in the situation where you're being attacked. And so your body is disconnecting from itself. Your brain is disconnecting from your body so that you feel less pain. Yeah. So that's the argument for splitting them. Okay. I think freeze, my opinion is freeze occurs on a spectrum and collapse is the furthest. Okay. That makes sense. But again, there's just different people to think different things there. Um, So there's also a lot of arguments. And when we talk about like developmental trauma, that once you have gone to one of these responses often enough, it sort of becomes your default response. All three are always available, but um, just in your biology. But if you go to freeze much more often, starting developmentally at a young age, you go to freeze much more quickly as an adult. Yeah. Right. So it's like the, what's the game like mousetrap? Do you remember that? I don't think so. The, there was like a Milton Bradley board game that was like called mousetrap and the mouse is running all over the board. And then there's like a slide you go down at one point. Yeah. <clears throat> Shoots and ladders. The slide is the same. Is default. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so you, as soon as you feel threat, you freeze. Okay. And that could happen whether the threat is coming from being attacked by a mountain lion or being in an argument with somebody or, um, you know, anything, a, a trauma trigger, a, a traumatic memory that comes up, anything. So we've yeah. talked about this before that like, you've talked about how you find yourself like reaching for fight pretty quickly. Right. I tend right. to check out pretty quickly. I don't really go to fight, which is not to say never. And you probably don't never too many negatives in the sentence go to freeze. It's just, you have a pathway that's more well-worn. So it's easier to go down. Right. You can't unlearn freeze. That was the question, right? How do I unlearn freeze? You can't. You can reframe it. And I think that's important to do because it is a, it's a response that you need, um, but you can't get rid of it, right? That's like saying that you want to get rid of a memory of something terrible that happened. It's just not how the brain works. You want to get rid of the experience of being hungry. That's just not how the brain works, right? Like you just, it's part of your biology. You can't unlearn it. You can learn to engage with it differently. And that is a very, very long process that, um, that involves what Peter Levine and some other people talk about as pendulation. I think we've talked about this before, but especially in this situation, and this is a really common thing, right? When, when this person says, I need to learn how to fight back without fear of becoming a killer, 
right? The fight response to you has been coded as mortally dangerous. So that itself becomes a threat. When you feel activated and angry, you experience that as threatening and you shoot further down the response ladder in the amygdala and you freeze, collapse, dissociate, whatever. Okay. And um, so it makes sense that you experience that. And that's true of anyone who experienced violence or abuse in their childhood, whether that was physical or verbal or both. Um, the way to engage differently with the response is so pendulation means you kind of come into the experience that's scary and then you come out of it. You can think about like, um, you know, what is the, like a pendulum, right? <laughs> Swinging from one side to the other, you kind of go into the thing you're afraid of and then you come back out. This works for all sorts of things. It works for traumatic memories that are really triggering for you. Um, it works for things that you have a phobia of, right? Expose yourself a little bit and then you come back out. And what, ha- what you're doing in that case is rewiring your neurobiology so that you start to learn that this response is available to you. And it's not something that you need to be afraid of. And the way that I would do that is to play with anger and fighting in ways that are totally safe and are not when you are activated and upset, right? So one potential way you might do this is by getting a punching bag, right? Okay. And um, actually experiencing punching, literally fighting for two minutes and then stopping and checking in with yourself. What's your heart rate like? What, you know, are you able to keep track of your thoughts or are you totally disconnected? You know, what's happening there? And if you do that for a long time, you know, weeks and months, two minutes of punching, you'll start to learn that fight is available to you. And it's actually quite powerful. And you'll probably notice during that time, that psychological anger comes up naturally. It sees the outlet and it comes out and it's like, okay, we are allowed to be here. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So that that's like a physical way to yeah, kind of rewire what's happening. I am interested when, I think he talks about, um, boundaries at one point. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder about the tool that we used behavioral chain analysis. Yeah. If you could, like when you, when you find yourself in one of those situations, if you could, um, kind of analyze what's going on, to prevent your boundaries from being um, violated, if that makes sense. Yes, um, I think so. So he talks about fight and he talks about boundaries. So, you know, it's. Yeah. I think if he felt that his boundaries were being respected or that he could uphold his boundaries Mm -hmm. or stand up for himself. Yeah. um, That he wouldn't feel that you know, it wouldn't be as frightening to them. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So behavior chain analysis goes the other direction. So you use it when you've noticed, and maybe this is what you're saying. I'm not sure that it's when you notice that your boundaries have been crossed and you haven't done the right thing and like maintained them and you notice after the fact. So the thing to go back, so the the body and and the mind are connected in this, right? Like your body is along for the ride. And in fact, it's sort of dictating your response to these situations. So you probably just get to freeze and you don't think there's anything in between the event and the freeze. Mm -hmm. So what to do is unpack that 
as you're saying, so if you have a recent example of a boundary violation, you can say, okay, what happened? I got to freeze. Let's start there. Now I'm going to work backwards and try to notice what led to freeze. What steps might there be that I don't notice? Cause I'm shooting down this ladder. Or I feel like I'm shooting down this ladder. And then you can find places to intervene. But if you do that without pendulating into fight, every time you get to fight, you will freeze. You have to like do okay. some body work around making that option possible for you. Okay. Got it. So that's the most important thing. That's the, that's what to do first. That's where I would start. Yeah. And then you'll notice that like, as we, and we, there's tons of studies on how body practices impact the way that we appear in the world in non-bodied ways, right. Or more like minded ways. Um, If you are boxing, you'll notice you probably feel more empowered in your daily life. And that will take effect in the way that you interface with people at work or with partners. You might find yourself able to not be aggressive and fight, but to occupy a space of more authority and power. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Strength. Yeah. Just standing in your own strength. Totally. Um, So that's where I would start there. Yeah. I also think just simply like you're in the car on the, you're on the road trip and just Mm -hmm. being aware of that is your tendency. Yeah. Like you, you and I have both done and talked about Mm -hmm. just, just knowing that that's where you go to will help you not go there as often. Right. Or be aware of it when it's happening. Right. Right. Totally. And look for um, co-regulation when that happens, right? We're not always able to do that work ourselves, even though we have this tendency in our society to kind of go inward and try to fix and unravel everything within ourselves, within our isolated beings. Um, Tell people around you that this is your tendency and ask them to notice it for you. And this can be a therapist or a friend or or a family member who you feel safe with who might say, hey, you know, it seems like you're checking out. Are you... Are you still here? Because sometimes that voice from outside can help regulate you when you, when it's kind of too late for you to regulate yourself, right? That's called Um, co-regulation. But that can teach you a bunch of important things. Number one, that other people are safe, that it's okay that they're noticing this, that they're not going to um, attack you. And, and it's not, you know, there's so much in this story of like, manipulation of the response, right? People are kind of seeing that you're frozen or that you're collapsed and taking advantage, right? Physically and verbally and in terms of relationships. So having someone recognize these responses and then actually like honoring you in them would be enormously healing. Right. Yeah. That's the stuff that happens. So I would also um, think about if you can swing it, finding a somatic experiencing therapist, because that's what that work is about, right? Is kind of noticing what's happening in your body and mirroring that back to you, which then gives you the idea that it's safe to be seen. Yeah. It, right. And that, that your power and your strength doesn't come from your response. Right. You know what I mean? You, right. From your from your freeze, from your letting people abuse you. Right. 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 Oh, you just froze. Can you hear me? 
Yes. I missed the last part of what you said though. Uh, that your power and your strength, you know, doesn't come from your defense mechanism. Doesn't come from your, from your freeze, from your, it's been ingrained. You've been taught, you know, that you shouldn't rock the boat and you mm-hmm. should, you know, be quiet and, and, uh, receive abuse, you know, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way to explain it. And that's to get in your own body and to realize your own strength in a different way would mm-hmm. be enormously powerful. I think. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think you've learned what you've learned. This is the thing that I always talk about this. Um, um, David Morris has this idea that he says tr- trauma is a truth that tells you a lie, right? Like the, the response that you have is true and biological and important. And it is a strength response, right? Like the fact that we do these things is what keeps us, the body is interested in survival. It's not interested in anything else. And right. so the, you survived and this is how you survive. So it's really important that we don't shame those responses because those are, this is how you got through all of this incredible amount of loss, pain, abuse, all of this. You're here because of those responses, you know, um, but you can move beyond them. You can integrate them differently so that you feel like you have some measure of control over what happens and you can learn that trauma the truth of trauma has told you a lie, which is that the world is unsafe, right? The world is not unsafe. These people are unsafe. And you responded exactly as you should have in those moments to survive. Mm -hmm. And so now you're here and you want to be able to engage with the world energetically from a place where you believe like that there is safety available to you, that you won't need to collapse or freeze or fight or flee, right? Like that's, I think the work, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Okay. If there's like a thousand other things I want to say, I feel like there's so much in this, in this letter. Um, you know, I, I can't like let it hunting. Yeah. The goodwill hunting reference. Mm-hmm. Such a great movie. If you have not seen that, go back and watch it. Yeah. Robin Williams, Matt Damon. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. The relationship stuff is really tough. I'm really like, I think it's amazing that, you know, this person is, is trying to co-parent and continue to be in some kind of relationship with this person who has been a really, you know, abusive person in their life. Um, Black and white thinking is really corrosive and it's all over the place, right? We, we, black and white thinking is present in our society as much as it is in pathology, right? So it could be the case that black and white thinking is happening and it's not necessarily borderline personality disorder, but that is one of the main features of BPD. And one of the things that is really corrosive about that disorder is this black and white thinking. So radical acceptance, even though it's frustrating, (laughs) is really helpful in, in the case of that because you start to see the gray, it opens you up to the gray. Um, But being involved with someone in any capacity who is steeped in black and white thinking is tricky because it tends to be, it's a little bit contagious. You start doing it yourself. The thinking pattern kind of catches on. Um, Yeah. And unlearning that is really healthy and helpful. Yeah. And recognizing that that's what you're dealing with too. Right. You know, and like he says, none of us are in a position to diagnose, but when you can kind of name, name a behavior mm-hmm. and understand it, it's, 
enormously helpful, I think. Yeah. Oh, totally. Noticing tendencies and, and patterns is that's how we do. That's how we get any traction on anything, right? Oh, wait, hold on. This kind of way that I'm thinking about this, or that this other person is thinking about this is leading to this behavior. Hold on. Let's see. Can we fix that? Can we reorient ourselves? That's huge. Right. But thank you again for writing back. I'm really glad. Keep us posted. Yeah. Thank you. And I hope this is helpful. Okay. Okay. You have, do you have a tiny little joy? I do. Um, so you know that I'm not a huge sports fan, but when you live in Boston, um, you know, it becomes infectious around here. Totally. Everyone's the whole thing about Tom Brady coming back to Gillette stadium this weekend and playing the first game against the Patriots. when he wasn't a Patriot and all the the hype and everyone was talking about it and you just, you can't help but get swept up in it. And I, I think the reason that it feels joyful right now is because it it's creating common ground for people. Mm-hmm. It's something to talk about that's not mm-hmm. negative. It's mm-hmm. not loaded. It's not, although you know, serious football fans would say it is loaded, but it's it's just yeah. like a it's like the weather. It's like something to touch base with. Everyone's kind of got an opinion, you know, yeah. how they feel about it. Yeah. It's a way to reach out in kind of a safe way, uh-huh. I feel. Um and that just I I just appreciate that. I get a kick out of that. Like it's a, it's a safe kind of greeting, like, you know, go pats or or what do you think about Brady coming back or, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just it feels good right now mm-hmm. in, in the world we're in with all the loaded stuff that's going on. So do sports have a, a way of bringing people together? You watch Ted Lasso, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like that stuff can be the great equalizer among, you know, warring countries. And it's, that's, it's a powerful. Well, it doesn't form. matter right where you live or what you believe or who you voted for or right. you know, anything. It's just, it's common ground and, and it's, um, it, it felt really good right. this past week to have something else to talk about. Oh, yay. Yeah. I feel like I should have follow-up questions, but I don't know anything about <laughs> what's happening. I mean, there's nothing really to say. He came, he played a game, they won. He always wins. It's, you know, whatever, but it was, um, it was, it was nice. It was okay. nice. Hey. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Boston. Um, Okay. Do I have a tiny little joy? I was really sick last week. Not COVID thought it was not COVID <laughs> and I'm starting to feel better. And I have kind of, you know, it's been, this is going to sound like a really strange, like, this is like a Paul Holes style, tiny little joy where it's like, you know, kind of a sad thing or whatever, but, um, well, because everything has been so isolated, I haven't been sick in like two years, over two years. I haven't had any kind of illness whatsoever. So it completely yeah. took me out and it was really rough. Like I'm still, you know, not fully hundred percent, but um, starting to feel better after you have been so knocked out is like a completely new lease on life. <laughs> when you can like, right. When you can like fall asleep without like, yeah, it's just, it's, that is my tiny little joy. Cause I'm just noticing like, Oh, feeling good feels really good. You know? That's good. Yeah. It's all perspective, right? Totally. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's stuff that's shitty or scary or whatever is, um, an important like perspective shift, you know? Yeah. I love that. That's good. Yeah. 
So I'm appreciating not feeling like shit because that's up. <laughs> but you're appreciating it more. Totally. Than you have. Because you yeah. see the contrast of like, oh, I felt like crap and this is, I couldn't take a deep breath and I had a fever and all this, you know, you're just like miserable, you know, like I was a wreck. And then you're like, okay, wow. Oh, I can take right. a deep breath. And now that, that feels so great. Why don't I always notice how good it feels to take a deep breath? <laughs> right. Right. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Also the, the psychological stuff behind like whether or not you have COVID is fascinating. I, I, that's what people are talking about. Like on the streets, like when they're, you know, when I run into someone who's walking their dog, like this woman was like, I went to a wedding. I, you know, I got a cold. I had to go get a test. Yeah. I was nervous for three days, you know, and I feel like that's what we're all going to be doing this winter. Totally. You know, totally. It, it's a, it's a different layer. It is a different layer. It's um, and then it's like, okay, is it COVID you're monitoring your symptoms much more than you normally would be? You know what I mean? Like I was, you know, it was just, yeah. It's a different thing. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Feeling better. Yay. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you for listening. Rate, subscribe, review, please, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Overcast or wherever you listen. We are everywhere. Um, but it really helps us. Thanks. Thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs>